Good morning. We are going to be going through Lamentations 4, and it seems pretty repetitive of actually uh, Lamentations 1 through 3, that it's just walking through misery again. And as far as our writing style, it's the same acrostic that we find in chapters 1 and 2, that the letters in the Hebrew alphabet, with each verse starting with a corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet, But what is the author sharing with us by walking us through misery again? And perhaps what he's doing is showing us how we are to walk through our own miseries again and again and again. That we live life honoring God, submitted to God, even when things don't seem to be getting better, even in our own misery. Now, we're nowhere close to what the people suffered in 587 BC, but we are going through misery now. And as life as it is now, how are we going to live through this time of inconvenience, of misery for some? And if changes are needed in your life at this time, will you continue to go about living the life that you have been living, or are things going to change? We're all in a time of a shut-in state here in California, when simple things like buying toilet paper or hand sanitizer is really challenging to find, and some may find this just a trivial thing, but then it gets a little bit closer to home when I get a call from a friend of mine who's a pastor in a more rural part of California where we sent the Amani Choir to live there for the next three weeks as we were hosting them here, but they felt that it wasn't uh, as safe for the kids here as it would be further away. And so in talking to this pastor, he was concerned about how that choir would be fed because it's a very small community with very limited resources. So then I loaded up my car this past Thursday with the items our church provided them while they were with us and some items from Cross Streets and some items from Teen Challenge and brought it up to them. And I'm grateful for our church's generosity to provide those in need. People are going to need us to be the church at this time. And there will be more people losing their jobs or losing hours at their jobs to where there will be a economic impact to them as well as to the entire world with entire industries being shut down. The number of people dying will continue to rise and the number of sick people will continue to rise without even a good timetable of when it all ends. With your faithfulness, we'll be able to continue providing food and other necessary items for their physical well-being and we'll be looking to serve the church and the community in a spiritual way to nourish the spiritual well-being of people as well. We'll try to continue doing these Sunday services online and with the gatherings on Tuesday for prayer and gatherings on Thursdays for worship, there will also be a call out through Zoom for home groups and your home group leaders will be in touch in regards to that as well. But I'm hoping what this serves to do for us is to wake us up to be a wake-up call for us in that are we going to stay the same if we weren't doing all that well with God? How much of a shake-up do we need to wake us up from our spiritual slumber? And as the author writes about this misery 
again, do we just become numb to it or will we have some sort of impact on our lives so that we change it and we live differently, to live life for God, to honor God, to submit to God, even in misery. In verses 1 through 11, the author once again recounts the misery of the Babylonian captivity, exile of Jerusalem. And we'll look at the first four four verses here first. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed, The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots. The work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. The author points out how cruel... This time was in verses 3 and 4. That these jackals who are scavengers. That these jackals are are even able to nurse their pups during this time. But but the mothers of exiles and captives. They have no food for their children. Pointing out that even scavengers, jackals. They they are doing better than these people. These these children are starving. and, And they're severely dehydrated. And the mothers have become like ostriches. And so the thought is that ostriches were cruel animals when ostrich hens, there's, there's actually quite a few hens that lay eggs in the same nest and they put them all together in one nest. And then the main hen stays there with the eggs. But what she does is she actually moves the eggs that she laid into the center of this nest. And then she starts pushing out the, the eggs of the other hens on the perimeter. And she'll actually push out an egg or two outside of the nest so that when those jackals come hunting for eggs, it'll take one of those eggs and not one of her own. It's really messed up. It's cruel. And this cruelty is what the mothers have become like to their children, that they've they've pushed them away. There's nothing to offer them. And so it's portraying this incredible hardship the people were dealing with. Moving on to verses 5 through 8 here. Those who once feasted on delicacies perished in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embraced ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment. And no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. When we get to verses 5 through 8, the author starts pointing out these reversals in life. That those who once ate the finest of foods are now dying on the streets looking for food. That those who wore the choicest of clothings are now finding themselves content just being covered with ash. That the wealthy are scavenging for food and clothing, no longer enjoying these delicacies and those expensive clothes they once wore. Then in verse 6, the writer shares with us how Sodom was wiped out in a moment. But the suffering of Judah won't be just a moment that it's going to go on for a while. See, Judah once appeared to have it all together, but no longer. There was a reversal. And then the reversal continues. Verses 7 and 8 share about how the leaders of the land, they appeared healthy, they appeared capable, 
but no longer, that you wouldn't even recognize them anymore. Those who once looked really put together, who looked healthy, capable, were now unhealthy, incapable. Verse 9, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Verses 9 and 10 are sharing with us what happens during a siege, that it was better to die a quick death in battle than it is to waste away from hunger and verse 10 is quite graphic that women cook their own dead children. And that's what happened during a siege. That this is what was prophesied in Deuteronomy 28, verse 53 and on. And this was how desperate this time was. Verse 11, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. And it's not until verse 11 that we here of the Lord being mentioned, and the evidence of his wrath, his anger is shown in this misery. But why is the author bringing all of this up again? Because last week when we were talking in chapter 3, there was this confession of faith and hope. And so what happened there? Why are we back here in this misery again? Whatever happened to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, where it reads, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. But we're back here in chapter 4. Shouldn't chapter 3 have made a difference? But isn't this true to life? That life is full of ups and downs. And faith is sometimes up and down. And there will be a time when our faith is really strong only to find that faith is just fallen weak down the road. That we run into valleys where we're not always on these mountaintops and some Christians don't like this idea that our faith is up and down, but it is. It's not always constant. It's not something where once you have it, you just keep it. And perhaps you're running into a time like that now where you're questioning faith or your faith is weakening. And that's life. It's similar to being in shape. You know, once you, you get into shape, you don't always just stay in shape. You, you have to eat well and exercise and rest and get rid of that stress. And you don't stay in the same shape if you don't work on those things. And that's the way life is, that the, the journey is up and down, and so is the life of faith, where we always need to keep Jesus Christ in mind. Even when we don't want to walk through Lamentations 4 again. And that's the kind of life that we want. We want a life where we don't have to walk through Lamentations 4 again. But we do. And we walk through Lamentations 4 again because it's a way that helps us keep Jesus Christ in mind. That faith, that hope of Lamentations 3 is found when we walk through Lamentations 4 again. 
to keep our gaze fixed on Jesus rather than the things that are distracting us from Christ. The faith of Lamentations 3 is still there. It just gets stronger walking through Lamentations 4 again. Verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. See, the the people in Jerusalem, they were so confident in their gates, in, in the Jerusalem gates, that no one would be able to break through those gates. What have we been overly confident in? Perhaps it's our democracy. Perhaps it's our military might. Perhaps it's our technology. And yet we find our gates broken. What was it that broke down those gates of Jerusalem? Verses 13 through 16. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away! Unclean people cried at them, away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. The first culprits to break down those gates were the sins of her spiritual leaders. And so some may debate that this is a metaphor and that the spiritual leaders weren't literally responsible for the gates being broken down, but but just figuratively. But that's not exactly what the prophet Jeremiah says. Jeremiah preached a message that put his life in danger in Jeremiah chapter 26 because it was definitely not a politically correct message for him to preach. And while others preached this message to the masses that they wanted to hear like they were God's covenant people and God would uh, never forget them. God, God would be there for them. Jeremiah gave this more comprehensive message from God and that the prophets and the priests were literally going to kill Jeremiah for this message that he preached and it was literal, not figurative in Jeremiah 26. Now back in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 14, it reads that the false teachers were deceptive and they didn't tell the people the truth. Here's the, the verse. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. And here in Lamentations 4, verse 13, the false prophets and the false teachers would kill those, like Jeremiah or attempt to, who spoke the truth. And the spiritual leadership at the time was the big problem. When we have a problem, how do we tend to address it? When we know there's a lot of work to be done, but not enough people to do it, what do we tend to do? We tend to throw money at things. We tend to want to assemble more people to address a problem. We tend to want to do something or take action, do something with our own hands, do something with our own words, and we want to take action upon ourselves to do something about what's wrong. But what did Jesus do? Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray 
earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That prayer is an action for us to pray. Pray to God for godly, sufficient, useful leadership for the universal church. That needs to be a concern for all of us because we read of what corrupt leadership does. It's, it's what cracked the gates open to Jerusalem to be delivered over to the enemy. We want to do when Jesus told us to pray. And we need to be in prayer for godly, God-fearing leadership in the church because ungodly leadership brings on judgment to people. When, when we look at spiritual leaders we tend to look for someone who's dynamic or extraordinary, who's just an impressive person. But our prayers ought to be for faithful leaders who are prayerful, wise, Bible-dependent, discerning, tough-skinned to take the ridicule, but still remaining tender-hearted to love people. And so what messed up the church in 587 B.C.? It's ungodly leadership that didn't follow the scriptures. Now going into verses 17 through 20, these verses give us an idea of what the people in Judah no longer had as they lived through this hopeless state. So verse 17 here, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. This is what happened in the last moments for Judah and King Zedekiah when they realized, you know, there's no, there's no escape. King Zedekiah was very, very concerned with public opinion and he was easily swayed by his political advisors. His political advisors wanted him to build an alliance with, with Egypt to the south so that they could fight together against Babylon, which was a really dumb idea because they didn't really get to the heart of the matter, which was sin. And they could do all this political maneuvering that they wanted, but their hearts were still far from God. And that's the thing that needed to be addressed. Verse 18, they dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end has come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. So there's nothing that they can do. Even if they got away, it was only a matter of time until they were captured there was no escape verse 20 the breath of our nostrils the lord's anointed was captured in their pits of whom we said under his shadow we shall live among the nations and so this is speaking of judah's king and through this line of king david would come this protector of the people king zedekiah was of this line but he definitely proves in jeremiah verse uh, chapter 39 he's not the protector of the people during the siege, Zedekiah did escape Jerusalem, but like verse 19 said, they caught up with them. They were captured in Jericho. Then you go back to Jeremiah chapter 39. I'll summarize it for you. They bring Zedekiah back to Riblah. There, King Nebuchadnezzar has Zedekiah's sons killed right in front of him and his nobles killed right in front of him. And then he has Zedekiah's eyes put out, binds him in chains, and taken to Babylon. So there's no more king in Judah. And what those people in Judah relied on in terms of a Messiah through a kingly line of David really casts a lot of doubt in terms of what does this mean? Because 
The kingdom is no more. The king is no more. But could this actually be the beginnings of hope? When we reach the end of our rope, when we finally hit rock bottom, and from there, there's really nothing else to see unless you're looking for hope. Sometimes it takes being stripped of everything so that we can see something. Sometimes all those false idols, false crutches, false supports needed to be removed so that we can see God. Sometimes it takes losing everything in order for us to reach out to God for deliverance, for rescue. Just like it was for King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, when he said, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, God doesn't always work like this, and sometimes God does, but if we find ourselves in a place like this, it's actually not a bad place to be. Sometimes the vantage point of hopelessness is where we can get a better view of God's promises, a better view of God's sovereignty. Verses 21 and 22. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So here we have the two, two stories of two daughters, Edom, Zion. Edom is south of the Dead Sea. And what sticks out from verse 11 is this cup. In the Old Testament, when the cup is brought about, it's usually about an imagery used for God's anger, his wrath, his judgment. And so when a nation drinks the cup, it's a drinking of judgment from God. It's, it's that wrath being poured out on them, that this wrath is what Edom drank, and it will now be helpless and drunk, and she will experience judgment. And continuing on with Edom in that last part of verse 22 there, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. This goes back to prophecies found in Jeremiah as well as Ezekiel. In Jeremiah, it's found in Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 7 through 22. I'll just point out one verse from there, verse 16. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Let me share with you a couple verses from Ezekiel. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 35, and this prophecy is in verses 1 through 15, but let me just read verses 3 and 4 for us. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, which is another name for Edom, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now why this judgment against Edom? need to go down to Ezekiel 35, verses 5 and 6. reads this. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. They hated the Israelites. 
and they helped capture them and to hand them over to the Babylonians. All right, so what's so great about God keeping his word about how he'll handle enemies like Edom if God's people are still suffering? Well, we need to keep in mind that God is faithful to his word. All of it. We can be assured of God's promises that if he keeps his word on judging Edom, God will also keep his word in the deliverance of his people, Zion. The author of Lamentations is writing to us that God will keep his word. And we can be assured of his word. That with judgment, there is also deliverance. That Leviticus 26 verse 44 rings true along with all of the other prophecies of what will happen in terms of judgment if we broke that covenant with God. But the verse 44 in chapter 26 is also true, which reads, Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. It's because God keeps his word that we have the assurance in Jesus. Because it is in God's word, in John chapter 6, verse 37, where Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. God's word is our assurance. Even when what we read seems negative, as in what the people are experiencing in Lamentations 4, which is being replayed over and over again since chapter 1 into 2 into 3, and again here in chapter 4, that the misery is being replayed again. But also a reminder that we can trust in the Word of God. Think about this for a moment in that if we are wrong in trusting God, let's just say we're flat out wrong, what's the most that we can lose? Our life, our salvation. But imagine what the Lord loses if we can't trust His Word. God loses His reputation, He loses His trustworthiness. He loses his integrity. God has way more to lose than we do if his word is not true. And since we know his word is true, we have hope, even in our time of misery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we walk through this difficult time, we still know that you are sovereign, Lord. We still know that you are all-powerful. And ask God that you reveal to us what it is you want us to hear and point us in directions of where you want us to change. May your spirit transform our lives during this time of Lent where most of us are shut in in our homes, where we can dedicate time to those spiritual disciplines of fasting, of praying, the simple prayer of look, O Lord, and see, the simple prayer of remember, 
as we read through Lamentations together and those uh, verses to reflect and prepare our hearts for Easter. As we look at our personal laments to share with you, God. As we look to almsgiving towards those who are less fortunate than us that we can help provide for. Lord, speak to your church during this time. May it not be weakened, but that we are strengthened as we are looking to you. You are our hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to encourage you to take this time of reflection and to just think of a current dark place that you may find yourself in now or a place of misery you may find yourself in now and maybe it's this current situation that our country, our world is in or maybe it has been something else that has just been with you and dragging along with you in your life that you need to present to God that this is your lamentations for that it just keeps coming up over and over and over again and that you need to grasp onto the promises of God And to ask him to look, Lord, and see, remember. If you're needing or wanting prayer, I just want to encourage you to go back to our site that those prayer requests, um, you can click on the link and send those prayer requests over to us. Our staff and our elders will be praying for those. Or you can simply email prayer at regenerationweb.com. Connect with us on Tuesday on Thursday nights for worship, on Tuesday nights for prayer. The communion doesn't just happen at church in terms of this building. We encourage you to do this within your home groups when you guys call each other on Zoom, that you would break bread together, that you would remember the Lord's promises that he will return, that that sacrifice of his body for our sins, we can remember that every day. So even at this time, if you want to do that as a church community, you can simply get some bread and some, something to drink and take that communion together in remembrance of the Lord and what he's done for us, his promises for us. Bless you.